We're going to be in Matthew 28, 18. At least it's going to be our starting point uh, this morning. Jesus' great commission to his disciples. And just like we did last week, I don't plan to stay in this, uh, in this one passage, but look at a number of passages uh, in the Bible to give us a better handle on what it means to make disciples. Why do we make disciples? What's included in this great commission? How does it play out in our lives together? In order to answer some of those questions, we've, we've taken a break from going uh, verse by verse through a particular book and entered a series on disciples making disciples. And if you want to know why we've entered this particular series, uh, I tried to lay some of that out uh, last week as the elders have been praying over these matters. But the main reason being that there are ways that we, as, as a church, could become more of one mind on making disciples and what's included and, and how it exactly plays out in, in every Christian's life. And so we've come to gather around God's Word to see how He instructs us in the matter. And today I want us to look at how the Lord instructs us in the matter of evangelism. Evangelism is speaking the gospel of the kingdom and persuading others to enter that kingdom by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's speaking the gospel of the kingdom and persuading others to enter that kingdom by repentance and faith in Christ. Last week, I set before you from Matthew's Gospel, a picture of a particular son of man, a particular king. This son of man is supremely powerful and is building a kingdom that will last forever. Uh, this son of man is also compassionate towards sinners in his, in his mission. And that compassion, we saw, it drove the son of man to give his life in the place of many sinners. These, should, these sinners, they should have been destroyed by his kingdom, cast into the outer darkness, dashed into pieces because they rebelled. But driven by compassion for them, this Son of Man came and gave his life in their place so that they could enter his kingdom unscathed by the wrath of God. And then we finally saw that this Son of Man is now risen from the dead and storming the gates of hell, chasing after the many He died for and gathering them into His kingdom until He returns to bring His final reign on the earth. And He's saying to you and me, come, 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 follow me, follow me, come give your life to my kingdom and its righteousness. Evangelism is simply speaking the gospel of this Son of Man's kingdom. And, and as you know, that Son of Man's name is Jesus Christ. Evangelism is holding out to people the person of Jesus and all that He has done for us and then persuading them to enter His kingdom through faith in His name. Making disciples begins here with evangelism. Now, let me be clear up front. Evangelism is not all that making disciples is. Making disciples also includes identifying believers with Jesus through baptism and then also instructing those believers to obey all that Jesus commanded. And, and we'll get to some of that in the next couple of weeks. So when you hear we're talking about evangelism today, don't think that's all that making disciples is. It's just one part. But before we can identify somebody with Christ through baptism and then bring them into the community of faith to instruct them to follow Jesus, we must first introduce them to Jesus. That's evangelism, introducing people to Jesus. I want to spend a, a significant amount of time today giving you some practical steps in this area of evangelism. I've got ten things to share with you, but first... I want us to see a few things about evangelism from the Bible itself, and, and Matthew uh, 28, 18 is going to be our starting place. So what I'm about to do is set evangelism, which is part of making disciples, I'm going to set it 
in a much bigger storyline of Scripture. And then after tracing that bigger storyline, I want to show you how the whole church participates in evangelism, not just a select few. And then lastly, I want to lead us into a few practical steps we can take together as a church in nourishing a heart for evangelism. So to begin, let's set evangelism and making disciples into, this, into, the, into the bigger storyline of Scripture, beginning with Matthew 28, because Jesus is definitely pointing it out here. He tells his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These words of Jesus are massively significant for a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons is that in them, Jesus links his victory over sin and death and his present reign in heaven. He links these things with the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. That's right. Jesus' commissioning of you and me to make disciples has beginnings that stretch all the way back to God's initial promise to Abraham to bless all the nations through his offspring. When Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, he's not just saying make disciples of a bunch of people. That may still be true in some sense, but he's being more intentional than that. Making disciples of all nations, this panta ta ethne, all the nations, is an intentional way of tying things back to the Old Testament. It's a way of Jesus saying, hey, the day has come for God to bless all the nations, all the Gentiles, through Abraham's offspring, and that offspring is me. And this shouldn't surprise us too much, because after all, how does Matthew begin his gospel? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is setting his commission within the context of God's sweeping plan of salvation that reaches back to Abraham. Discipling the nations is not a new idea. It's been God's plan all along. Paul picks this up as well in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, when he says that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, so the idea is that the Scriptures are looking forward to God justifying the Gentiles by faith, it preached, the Scriptures preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Matthew's proclamation here is in sync with Paul's proclamation. Matthew's gospel is a worldwide announcement that the long-awaited son of Abraham has arrived in the person of Jesus. And by dying for sins and rising from the dead, Jesus has flung the door of salvation wide open for all the nations of the earth. Anybody without distinction who comes and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their background, if they put their faith in Christ, will find themselves eternally blessed with the forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God Himself. Matthew also tells us that Jesus is the son of David. And also sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, we find these same kinds of words, all the nations, applied to the promised offspring of David. Another David was expected to come. This David was going to stand in the place of his people as a king. He would represent them. He would defeat their enemies and then extend his rule from sea to sea. And once this happened, all the nations would, would swarm in. They would come in and, and bow before this king and worship him. You read one of the passages earlier, Psalm 22, verse 27, for example. All the nations of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And here is Jesus having stood in the place of his people on the cross, 
having defeated our greatest enemies, which is sin and death itself, here is Jesus reigning with all authority in heaven and on earth. And what do the disciples begin to do in verse 17? They worship him. And now he's telling them, go spread the word of my victory and my reign to others. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to you and me, give up your life for my kingdom's advance. The unstoppable God of the universe is bringing my kingdom. Nobody can stand in its way. He will raise his mountain above all other mountains. Give up your life to announce the news of my reign. See what my God and what I am doing to, uh, uh, to save the nations. All his purposes are coming to fruition. His kingdom is spreading from sea to sea. And he's telling the disciples, you're the, man, you're the means of advancing this news. Go and make disciples. That's the bigger storyline into which evangelism and making disciples fits. Making disciples isn't so much about what we're doing as much as it is about what God is doing. We just get to join Him. Part of joining Him is spreading the news of His kingdom or, or evangelism, telling people to enter His kingdom now before it's too late when He establishes His rule on earth and brings His sword against His enemies. But that leads us to another step we should take this morning. I want to show you now that within this sweeping plan of God, the whole church participates in evangelism, not just a select few. And what I want to do is start with Jesus and his disciples right here in the Gospel of Matthew, then take us briefly to the book of Acts, and then a few places in Paul's letters. Even before Jesus gives his disciples the commission to make disciples, we find Jesus himself evangelizing and then teaching his disciples to do the same. So, for instance, right after Jesus overcomes Satan's temptations in, in Matthew 4, okay, we, we find him going out to the Gentiles... Galilee of the Gentiles. We, we find him going out to the Gentiles, these people who are sitting in darkness. They have no special revelation from God, no Bible to light their path. And so Jesus goes to them, and it says in chapter 4, verse 17, that he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then he grabs his first batch of disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're fishermen. And Jesus tells them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And the next thing Jesus does is show them how to fish for men. We see him teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Evangelism involves bringing the gospel of the kingdom to others and, and making sense of it for them. This is, this is the way it plays out and, and affects your life. And then Jesus does it again in chapter 9 of Matthew. He calls Matthew uh, to follow him. And then as Matthew is following him, Jesus starts introducing himself to the tax collectors and to the sinners on the streets, and he calls them to follow him as well. And Matthew is watching all along, taking notes, learning from Jesus' his example. And then not too much later, towards the end of chapter 9, in verse 35, we get this. It says, uh, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he asked the disciples to pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What's Jesus doing yet again? He sees these people harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Nobody's making the disciples. Nobody's teaching them the right path. Nobody's directing them to the Son of Man. Nobody's telling them, follow Christ. And, and Jesus has compassion on them. And he wants his compassion for these people to become the disciples' compassion. 
So he asks them to pray for laborers who will rescue them and then sends them out as laborers to preach to them the same message that they heard Jesus preaching to them. The gospel of the kingdom, chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus evangelizes and then teaches his followers to do the same. He's showing, that, he's showing them that bound up with discipleship, with following Jesus, is speaking his gospel, speaking his good news. Again and again, this happens throughout Matthew's gospel, while at the same time you keep hearing these, these little echoes in the background that, that the gospel is going to be preached to all the nations. That you Remember the time when the lady comes in and anoints Jesus' feet, and he says, when the gospel is preached to, to all the nations, that this story of this woman doing this to me is going to be told, and, and, and many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. How are these many from the east and the west going to recline with Abraham? Well, they're hearing. They're hearing the gospel go out. And then finally, in Matthew 28, this this whole kingdom agenda ramps up in light of Jesus' resurrection and in light of his authority in heaven and on earth. and and, And he commissions his disciples to do what? To make more of what they are. To make more of what he made them to be, to make, make more disciples who are then taught to do the same things that Jesus taught them to do. And part of that includes evangelism, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And, and it doesn't take too much reading into the book of Acts to see that that initial commission to those 11 being embraced by more than just the 11, but by the entire church. For instance, in Acts 2.47, we find all the believers not just gathering with each other, but having favor with all the people while the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, those disciples who were then uh, scattered because of Stephen's martyrdom, they get scattered into Judea and Samaria. What do they do? It says that they go on preaching the Word of God. And then on numerous occasions, you get these uh, sweeping statements in the book of Acts, like the Word of God increased and multiplied. Or, or uh, when after Tabitha is restored to life, um, this, this account, it becomes known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. How does that happen? How does this increase and multiply, known throughout all Joppa? How does this happen? Well, it happens when disciples spread the Word. When disciples see that their lives are one big on-ramp to Jesus Christ. They talk about Him. They talk about who He is, what He's done. And then we get several places in Paul's letters where, where he continues this same song of evangelism belonging to everybody in the church. You know, it'd be really easy, especially if you have somebody like Paul as, as your pastor. It'd be really easy to be like, you know, hey, you're really gifted in this evangelism stuff. You go do that. I'll sit over here and I'll make friends with the people you win. But I'm not going to go do it. You, you go do that part. You're really good at it. I'll just show up on Sunday. And again and again, Paul shows us that such a mentality cuts against the grain of the gospel message itself. There are things about the gospel itself that don't permit that kind of talk in the church. And so for starters, the gospel... Think about it with me. The gospel has at its center a person who is supremely glorious, Jesus Christ. In Him, all God's promises are yes and amen. In Him, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. In Him, we find a perfect sacrifice for our sins. In Him, we find forgiveness. In Him, we find fellowship with God. In Him, we find access to to heaven and, and all of its blessings. In Him, we find God's glory revealed for all of heaven to enjoy for eternity. And if we've truly come to see Jesus' glory in the gospel, our mouths ought to want to talk about it often to others. 
We'll want them to stand amazed at Christ too and come and bow down before them. This is how Paul lays it out in in, in Romans 15 as he's trying to get the Roman church to partner with him in the spread of the gospel to to Spain. And he's going on and telling you, don't you you see that Christ came not, uh, uh, not only as a servant to the circumcised and to show God's truthfulness, but also in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he just quotes one text after the other from the Old Testament. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. The root of Jesse will come, even he who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And he's like, get on board with getting the name of Jesus out to people because it's time for all of them to come worship him. He's glorious. And he stands as the center of the gospel message or, or something else that, that characterizes the gospel message. The gospel message itself is a proclaimed message. That's what Paul calls it in Colossians 1.23. The gospel, he says, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And his point is Not that the gospel has already reached every single individual under heaven, but that the only gospel the church possesses is a proclaimed gospel, is an advancing gospel, is a darkness-penetrating gospel. It's an onward-marching message, and if this message is what has saved us and what we live by day to day, then we too will be serving its onward march. You can't stop its growth in the world. That's the logic of the gospel message. God stands behind it as He brings His purposes to pass. And the gospel is also the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To embrace this message about Jesus is to escape our desperate plight under the wrath of God because of our sins. And not just to escape wrath, but also to gain a right understanding, I mean, a right standing with, uh, before God, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And if we've experienced that kind of deliverance ourselves, we can't be anything other than debtors to those for whom Christ has died. Debtors to those who have yet to hear of this good, name, uh, of this good news. That's, that's why Paul says in Romans 1.14... I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians and to the wise and to the foolish. And we're going, wait a minute, I thought you were under obligation to Christ. Are you under obligation to Christ? Or are you under obligation to, the, to both Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and foolish? And Paul is going, yes! He's indebted to them. He owes them the gospel because he's experienced its saving power through Christ. As one writer put it, uh, Paul Minier, our obligation to Christ who died produces obligation to those for whom Christ died. And so in several ways, the decision not to evangelize is contrary to the gospel message itself. But Paul also calls attention to several other things that that show us that evangelism is something every Christian participates in to one degree or another. One is that Paul tells the church in Corinth to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Paul tells the church in Corinth to imitate him as he imitates Christ. This is chapter 11 and verse 1. But if you, if you go back into chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians, part of what they are imitating is how Paul becomes all things to all men in order that he might save some. This is what they're supposed to imitate. So we're called to imitate Paul's evangelistic practice. We're called to imitate his sacrificial bending here and there. We're called to give up some of our own personal preferences to gain a hearing and, and win people to Christ. 
Then he also tells us in Ephesians 6 that part of our spiritual armor as, as Christians is, is we've got some uh, gospel footwear, right? We're to put on as shoes, he says, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is an Old Testament image for, for the messengers who run to announce the good news to others. Hey, hey, everybody, our king has won. Uh, we have got the victory. And he's going and telling everybody back home. Their, their feet, they, they dance on the mountaintops to, to herald the good news of the, of the king's victory. This is every Christian's armor because every Christian has Christ. This is every Christian's armor because every Christian has Christ, which is where the armor comes from in the first place. Christ has these kinds of feet. We can see it playing out in Ephesians 2 when he's going and, with, and declaring to Jew and Gentile alike, peace, peace, right? And there's actually peace because, because of his death they have now peace with God and peace with one another. And this is the message Christ himself brings. And when we're in Christ, when we're clothed with Christ, when we have Christ's armor, our feet do the same kinds of dancing. And then one more place in Paul. Uh, we've got the nature of the gospel itself we've seen, the imitation of Paul's ways, some fancy footwear called the gospel of peace. And, and now lastly, uh, Paul sees Everybody in his, the local churches that he plants, he sees them as partners, partners in the, in the gospel's advance. Both the church in Philippi and the church in Thessalonica, when Paul writes to, to both of these churches, he rejoices in their evangelistic proclamation of the gospel. Uh, he, in 1 Thessalonians 1.8, he says, The word of the Lord sounded forth in Macedonia and Achaia, while he's been away, sounded forth. In these other cities by the church. And then when he's in prison and he's writing to the Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 14 of, of Philippians, he says that the believers in Philippi have been much bolder to speak the word without fear because of Paul's imprisonment. Paul's sitting in prison, chained up, there back home, getting emboldened. But because of his imprisonment and sharing with others. So these various pictures sound, keep sounding the same note that we started with Jesus and his disciples. Evangelism is bound up with discipleship. It's for every believer. It's for the whole church. It's not to say that every believer's gifts in evangelism will be identical the New Testament is clear that some will be more gifted than others. And it's also not to say that all of our evangelism efforts will look exactly the same. Not everybody, for example, did what Paul and Barnabas did. There were other responsibilities back home to the people around in, in the cities that needed attention. So not all of our evangelism efforts will look the same. It's only to say that this amazing privilege of bringing the good news of our King to others belongs to all of us not just a select few. So what are some steps toward nourishing a heart for evangelism in our own lives? What are some steps we can take to, to encourage this evangelism in our own walk? I've got 10 of them, and this isn't exhaustive by any means, but I hope it's a start. If you think of others that are better, then you share them with somebody else in this, in this church and pass the news along. So, here we go. Number one, examine yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you're truly in the faith, to see if you're really a Christian. That might sound like an odd place to begin, but it's absolutely necessary. You cannot make a corpse dance. How deceiving it would be to tell you to, to go out and deliver a message that you don't really love, that you don't really know, that you don't really possess yourself. How can you truly publish peace when you have no peace with God? How can you truly overcome fears when, when your identity isn't found in Christ? How can you truly love your enemies if you, if you don't know the forgiveness of your own sins? Luke seven forty seven says, Those who are forgiven much love much. 
A heart for evangelism begins with the new birth, with the forgiveness of sins. If you determine you're not a Christian, do not run away from Christ or this church. You're in the right place. Repent and put your faith in Christ. Christ shed His blood for your sins. And He invites you to come to Him for life now. Today is the day of salvation. He says, come to Me, all you who labor and are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will take you in no matter how many years you've pretended to be a Christian. Number two, pray for help. Pray for help. Everybody in here who has a relationship with Jesus can pray. The way to God has been opened for you. The forgiveness of sins has been procured. Your sins are forgiven through Christ, and you can come boldly before the God of the universe and ask for His help. We're talking about the Son of Man here. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28 says, and He is with you. Ask Him to give you opportunities to share the gospel with people. Make it one of just one of your regular requests. Father, send somebody to me or give me the courage to go to them that I might preach the gospel to them. Paul asked the church to pray for him this way while he's in prison. He's chained up to people. He's got guards walking. Just say something to him, Paul. Right? This is what you think, but he asked the church, pray for a door to open because he knows the gospel doesn't advance by human means, but by divine means. So he asked the church to pray. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That I could tell my cellmates the mystery of Christ. How many people in here can pray, pray to give thanks uh, before their meals? How many of you pray to give thanks before your meal? Raise your hand. You can begin here, right here today in terms of evangelism. Just start praying. Some of you who may be more intimidated by a message like this on evangelism, you just need to start here with prayer. Your, your, your week, this next week, shouldn't be, I'm going to go out and start doing street preaching Downtown Fort Worth. Great if that's what God does in you today. But a lot of you are just going to start with prayer this week. Begin there. Pray for God to make it so. Pray for opportunities to share. Pray for lost friends and family members. Pray for people's conversion. Pray for boldness and wisdom in sharing. Like the uh, early church did. Pray for God to use you. Number three. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of your desperate condition before you knew Christ. Then remind yourself of God's extravagant love for you in the cross. Look often at Christ's kingdom and all the riches uh, for for people who believe. Just... Just take passages of Scripture and turn them in your minds throughout the day. Remember the Son of Man's compassion toward you. Every Christian can do this as they meditate on the good news and and memorize God's Word and, and, and sing the songs of Zion. The more thrilled you are with Jesus, the more you'll want to talk about Him. We talk most about what we love. Would your neighbors and friends and co-workers know that you love Jesus by what you talk about most? Changing that doesn't start with a mere commitment. I'm going to talk about Jesus more. No, you won't. No, you won't. Not if you're not treasuring Him in here. It begins with treasuring Jesus in the gospel. So preach the gospel to yourself. A heart for evangelism grows out of a love for Jesus as He is beheld in the Scriptures. This is, uh, you know, First Peter uh, brings this up when, uh, when he's talking about our deliverance from uh, darkness 
1 Peter 2, um, 9, right there at the end, it's talking about us being a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Where does the proclamation of excellencies come from? It comes from looking at the fact that you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, you want to tell others about it. So preach the gospel to yourself. Number four. We're still in... Everybody can do this in here. You don't have to be particularly gifted in evangelism to do these things. Look at people through Jesus' eyes. Look at people through Jesus' eyes. We just finished the Gospel of John. Remember, remember John 4, uh, when Jesus is with the woman at the well and the disciples go into town to grab some lunch? And they get back, they see Jesus talking to this woman, and they're a bit puzzled why Jesus would be talking to this woman who is a Samaritan. And the woman runs off to tell her village about Jesus and all that he knows about her. And, and all the people from this Samaritan village start, start coming to Jesus. And while these people are, are, are coming to Jesus across the fields, right, the, the, the disciples urge Jesus, hey, eat your lunch. You've got revival breaking out in Samaria, and the disciples are like, hey man, your Jimmy John's is ready. Come on, eat up. Jesus is, tells them, I got food you don't know about. What's the problem here? The disciples don't see. They need new eyes. And so Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. We need to see people in this way. We need to see people through Jesus' eyes. We need to see that people without Christ are really walking toward destruction. We need to see that every person will spend eternity in hell if they do not know Jesus. We need to see that Jesus is now risen and reigning as the Son of Man and drawing all the nations to Himself now through the proclamation of the gospel. Seeing this people, seeing people this way changes how you interact with Him. The guy at the gas station while you're filling up your car isn't just someone you don't know. He's going somewhere and you have a message that can rescue Him. Number five, <clears throat> plan for evangelism. Plan. Now, earlier I mentioned pray for God to send you opportunities. So this is uh, not to exclude the uh, spontaneous opportunities that God might provide you as a result of some of your praying, but also, in addition to praying for those opportunities, plan for evangelism. We plan for so many other things in life that are far less important, like watching a basketball game or going to a movie. Why wouldn't we plan for evangelism? Plan to bring others the gospel. This is one reason why we try not to put too many programs in place at Redeemer. There's nothing inherently wrong with programs, but too many of them can pull you away from interacting with lost people throughout the week. So we try to minimize programs to give us the extra time to reach the lost with the gospel. So what might this planning look like? might look like just uh, pulling out your monthly calendar and writing on your calendar, invite Jason and Rajad over for dinner Friday, the 19th, or treat a co-worker to lunch on this Wednesday. Or it could be more general, like Fourth Friday Evangelism. Just have it there. You maybe you don't know what you're going to do each month, but just it's there. Plan, and, and everything else gets shaped around it. Or, or Third Saturday Pancake Breakfast for, for your neighbors in the neighborhood. Just have them over 
in hopes that these relationships, as you build them and as you learn people and as you learn of their struggles and see their idols, that these relationships open doors for the word to be spoken. I know some of you have made cookies before for the trash men that pass by on your street during the week. You give them to him in hopes to befriend them. Or others of you that, that frequent the same coffee shops or, or uh, the playgrounds uh, throughout the week that you take your kids to, you, you go to the same ones again and again in hopes to meet the same people to share with them. It, it's planned. Now, if you're married, husbands, you have to lead out in this planning, especially since the family schedule largely revolves around your work schedule. Or if the wife is working, you'll, you'll have to adjust accordingly there too. Number six, partner with others in the church who are gifted in evangelism. So this is recognizing right here that that there are some in the church that are more gifted than others in evangelism. And we'll look at some of this in the next, uh, over the next two weeks of our partnership together in making disciples. But but learn from each other. Uh, Dan, Dan Hilmers used to tell me again and again, evangelism is more caught than taught. Okay. I lean on the taught thing. He was very good about both and, teaching and showing. And, and I want to grow in that area. Rather than being intimidated by your brothers and sisters who are great evangelists, see them as God's good gifts to you. 1 Corinthians 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For those of you stronger in evangelism, invite others to come with you. When you talk to unbelievers, let them them in on the conversation. Show them the multifaceted ways the gospel addresses the questions that that unbelievers are asking and struggling with. And, and also let them see that not every discussion with an unbeliever is easy and oftentimes heart-wrenching when they walk away from Christ. Christ has given us to one another so that we might grow in our Christ-likeness together, and part of that Christ-likeness includes evangelism. Number seven, take risks for Christ's sake. Take risks. You know why evangelism isn't easy? Because there is a host of powers and principalities, spiritual forces of darkness that do not want you to say a word about Jesus. Because it is the gospel message that gives people the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And, first, and 2 Corinthians 4 says, the God of this world is blinding the minds of unbelievers. You keep quiet, is what he says, because he doesn't want them to see Christ in all his glory. That's why it's hard. That's why it's awkward. That's why you're tempted when you go up and talk to people to turn and walk away. But this is why God gives us the armor of Christ and shoes our feet with the gospel and gives us the sword of the Spirit, which is His Word. War is risky. We take risks to tear down the spiritual strongholds in people's lives with the gospel. This is especially a word to introverts like me and to those who lean toward isolation like me. I have to die to my introverted self to reach out to the guy at Starbucks when I see him hanging his shoulders with depression and needing help. This may sound small, but it's risky for me just to simply say, hey man, what's wrong? Can I I help you? Can I pray for you? uh, Do you need something? My fellow introverts, we cannot let personality labels rule the day while people are perishing. 
I'm not saying you have to become a street preacher tomorrow morning, but just to think of ways to speak of Christ to others, whether that's one-on-one, with a phone call, through a letter. The point is that we have to die to see people live. That's what discipleship is. We have to take risks to speak into others' lives. That risk might be as small as speaking to someone when every fiber in your body is wanting to go hide. Risk might mean moving into a neighborhood you'd rather not live in. Risk might mean having the same sex couple next door over for dinner. Risk will take various forms for each of us. But this we know from Jesus Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let's die that much fruit might be born. Number eight, use the Bible when you evangelize. Use the Bible when you evangelize. Maybe the first place to begin talking to somebody about Jesus isn't some sort of packaged gospel presentation, but an invitation to read the Scripture with you. Maybe it's Genesis 1. Make sure you have a copy of God's Word and and then ask them to get to know Jesus from the Bible itself rather rather than just your own words. Read through one of the Gospels with them. And, and make time to, to meet with them and discuss what they read. Ask them questions. What do you see about Christ? What is, what, what, how, how, how does this apply to you? Help people see that you're not just feeding them your own opinions. You're feeding them what God Himself has revealed from heaven. And we must remember that it's God's Word that ultimately gives life to the dead not our own. Also, when you're using your Bible, this would be number nine, learn from Jesus and the apostles how to speak with people about the gospel. Learn from Jesus and the apostles. Take notes on how they approach each person. You'll find that they don't always preach the gospel the same way. There's no canned approach to evangelism. Jesus isn't going up to this Samaritan woman and dropping the four spiritual laws. Jesus doesn't speak to the self-righteous Pharisee the same way He speaks to the woman at the well. He doesn't speak to the rich young ruler in the same way he speaks to the man born blind. Paul doesn't speak to the Jews the same way he speaks to the Greeks. Don't get me wrong, they're always proclaiming the same gospel. They just do it in different ways that best meet people where they're at. Jonathan Dotson has a helpful book on this matter called The Unbelievable Gospel. Say something worth believing. The unbelievable gospel. Say something worth believing. If you want to look it up, very helpful. Jonathan Dodson. He does a great job of pointing out the various gospel, what he calls gospel metaphors of Jesus and the apostles. He says, if we slow down long enough, which is probably the biggest takeaway I had from the whole book, is slowing down long enough with people, not just to blast them with, God send Christ's faith. You're like, Slow down, listen to them, know them, hear them out. That takes time. Love is not convenient. It says, if we slow down long enough, we will see which gospel metaphor in the Bible intersects with a person's loves. He says, for example, to the guilt ridden. Jesus brings guilt-absorbing redemption. To the person who is rejected, Jesus brings justifying acceptance in Christ. 
to the one who is abandoned. Jesus brings the adopting love of a perfect father. You see these different metaphors, redemption, justification, adoption. To the hopeless and the worn out, Jesus brings the message of new creation, resurrected bodies. To those who are longing for intimacy, he brings union with Christ. So his encouragement in his, in, throughout his book, as he's drawing these various places from these various places in Scripture, is, is that we learn some of these same metaphors from Jesus and his apostles and then be able to speak them into people's lives as we're listening to them. So learn from Jesus and the apostles. And then finally, tenth, simply be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful with what the Lord gives you each day. You hear a message like evangelism, maybe you get excited, maybe you're making plans. Okay, tomorrow I'm going to do this. And you wake up tomorrow morning and you're sick for seven days. Don't get discouraged if you're sick tomorrow and you're cooped up in bed all week. And don't get to share with anybody. The Lord gives us different circumstances to deal with from time to time, and the world around us needs to see us content and resting in Christ. Our daily contentment and peace in Christ will then help to authenticate the message that we preach when God opens the door for us to preach it. More than that, it's very tempting in our microwave, smartphone generation to want immediate results when we evangelize. But let me remind you, brothers and sisters, evangelism is not converting people. Evangelism is showing people how they can be converted through faith in Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel, lay the good news out before them, hold out to them the person of Jesus Christ. He loved you. He died for you. And leave the results to God. Call them to faith. Call them to repentance. Call them to come. Invite them to church. Take them to care group. Have them over for dinner. But leave the results to God. God changes the heart. As Mark Dever likes to put it, the gospel seed might lie in the ground until you do and then speak forth to life. The gospel seed might lie in the ground until you do and then spring forth to life. Just be faithful to preach it. Be faithful to sow the seed. Simple faithfulness is all that God is asking of us. May He be pleased to use us in the salvation of many as we speak the gospel of Christ's kingdom. And we pray together.